Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. To celebrate the release of my new novel, Mr. Secrets on Audible, Please enjoy this excerpt from the audiobook. Mr. Secrets is available now in print and ebook formats from Amazon and in audiobook from Audible. Prologue July 8th, 2021. The woman woke at midnight. A distant sound both so familiar and so alarming pressed delicately on the edge of her awareness. Sirens. They hadn't awoken her. No, if the sound of sirens was enough to wake her, she never would have slept through one night in their little house on Chicago's south side. To the woman, sirens were just a fragment of the ambience, the way chirping birds and lawnmowers blended into the background in calmer, wealthier parts of the country. The drunkenness of sleep smothered her mind, and for a moment the woman considered rolling over and forcing herself to sleep. Mama, a small voice whispered from her cracked open bedroom door. A little lurch beneath the woman's heart cured her of her sleepy state. What is it? she asked her peeping daughter. It's Daddy, her daughter replied. I'm scared. What do you mean? the woman asked. Don't you hear the sirens? the little girl answered with her own question. Those might not be your daddy's sirens, love, and even if they are, do you remember what we always say? What they always said was, daddy's job is to help people. But the little girl knew that wasn't always true. Some nights daddy came home with bruises on his face, sometimes his knuckles. The girl knew you didn't get those kinds of bruises from helping people, unless... Maybe sometimes helping someone meant hurting someone else. She found this thought troubling. It hurt her little head to consider this dichotomy, but she knew one thing, and one thing for certain. Her daddy was a good man. He was kind, thoughtful, and generous. If he ever had to hurt someone, that someone must have been a real bad person. The little girl took some comfort in that. They're getting closer, the girl whispered. Her mother listened. The sirens were growing louder and clearer. The fragment of ambience had splintered away and was in freefall, heading directly towards them. Where's your sister? she asked the girl, and received a careless shrug in response. With a grunt, the mother shed her papery sheets and entered the hallway. She saw her older daughter silhouetted in front of the living room window, a glinting street lamp casting her stretched shadow down the hall. The sirens were closer now. They had started to reflect off neighboring houses, confusing their exact location. Flashes of red and blue joined the streetlight and made the older daughter's shadow dance on the walls. Get away from there, the mother shouted. She tried to hold one daughter back as she rushed forward to pull the other away. We've got to get these girls out of this shithole, she thought. She had almost reached her daughter when the mother heard a gut-punching crash. The sirens hiccuped and tires squealed. The battling vehicles were just around the corner when the first shot cracked. Down, the mother screamed. 
she pulled on her daughter's nightgown just as the first vehicle, an old burgundy sedan with its rear end caved in, came barreling up the street directly towards their house. The trailing police car had a piece of the first car's fender hanging from its push bumper. The burgundy sedan hit the curb just as the police car hit a second time, executing a perfect pit maneuver, spinning it almost 180 degrees around. The sedan ground to a halt in the middle of the front lawn. The woman covered both of her girls' bodies with her own but peeked over the windowsill. She had to know. Even if it meant risking her life, she had to know. And her daughter's intuition, against all odds, had been correct. The officer who kicked open his door and leveled his gun at the smoking sedan was her loving husband, father of two. That's what his obituary would say. As she watched horrified, she didn't notice her young daughter's heads rising up next to her own. May 7th, 2021 The contractor had decided a few years earlier to try his hand at flipping houses in Phoenix, Arizona. He had seen it done in the plague of home improvement shows that constantly barrage American viewers, and he had even met a few successful flippers in his trade. He had been hired to finish the basement of an old farmhouse once, and the guy who hired him asserted that the place would sell for 30% more than he had paid, including the cost of all improvements. The man's mouth-watering projections haunted the contractor every time he landed a bad job. Whenever he cashed his mediocre checks, his mind would drift to the flipper's extravagant profit margins. For the contractor, those margins could be even higher, theoretically. He wouldn't have to hire some bum such as himself to take care of the dirty work. He could do it on his own. Plus, he could do it on his own time. If anything went wrong, he could just handle it rather than take shit from some schmuck in a button-up shirt and cheap tie. Hell, he could grab a cold beer and cope with it the old-fashioned way if he wanted to. The more he considered the prospect of self-employment, the more it seemed like a future hand-carved for him. It felt like destiny. And he wasn't usually the type to believe in some bullshit like destiny. Never having the responsibilities of marriage or children had allowed the contractor to put aside a healthy sum for a rainy day. He invested it in his first property, a small home he won from a county auction. The suburban ranch house desperately needed updated fixtures, a fresh coat of paint, and new carpet. But when all was said and done, he made off with a 30% profit. He took that money and reinvested it in a large colonial home. The colonial demanded much more time, effort, and money. It needed new windows, a few interior doors, some plumbing updates, and new paint in nearly every room. But the contractor was a shrewd man. He knew where to get deals on materials, and even though it took much longer than it would have with a crew, he was able to fix everything but the windows on his own. This sophomore project only yielded about 20% profit, but it was a nice fat 20%. The contractor's fortune took a dump on his third project. Purchasing the home had been a calculated risk, maybe more of a gamble, really. If all had gone well, he should have made a healthy profit, but almost nothing had gone well from the start. Some of the work required a crew this time, mainly the roof, which had to be completely reconstructed. While the roofers did their thing, the contractor worked on various interior projects. If he needed a hand with anything, he would just pop outside, offer one of the roofers ten bucks in cash, and they would help him out. Everything was peachy until his tools started disappearing. The contractor had never personally lost a single tool, 
a source of pride for him. He only replaced tools when they were too worn out to be of use. But for some reason, he lost tools left and right during the third house flip. The tools weren't individually expensive, but a hundred bucks here, a couple hundred there, added up quickly. What frustrated Bollinger more than the cost to replace them was how they had all simply vanished. If he had misplaced them, they should have turned up at some point. But weeks into the project, none of them did. The contractor had to ask himself what was different about this project. Only one answer stuck out. The roofing crew. He knew a few of them from previous jobs, but not everyone. If just one of them was a dirty thief, it could explain his problem. Halfway through the roofing job, the contractor fired the whole crew. He hated doing that to the guys he knew, but his bottom line was being threatened. And when you work for yourself, a threat to your bottom line is a threat to your livelihood. A new batch of roofers showed up in the coming days. The tools kept disappearing. The contractor complained about this issue to a random roofer who happened to take his lunch on the porch that day. Oh man, I think you left them in the attic, man, the roofer said through a mouthful of roasted turkey and rye. No, I haven't done any work up there yet. There's no way I would have left any tools in the attic, the contractor replied. Oh, I don't know, man. I've just seen a bunch of tools laying around up there. Since we got the roof all opened up, you know. What kind of tools? Asked the contractor. Um, I don't know, like some drills and hammers and stuff. The contractor stood without saying another word to the roofer. He went inside and found the stairs leading up to the attic. He brought a flashlight with, but there was enough light coming through the openings in the unfinished roof for him to see clearly. Light shone on the attic floor and, scattered all across it, his tools. It made no sense. It wasn't possible that he had put all those tools up in the attic since he hadn't even been up there since the day he had first toured the house. If someone on the first crew had been hiding them up there, maybe as some juvenile prank, why had the tools continued to vanish after that crew was gone? And why wouldn't they have admitted to it before he had fired the whole crew? A roofer smiled at him through one of the openings in the roof and waved. Hey, mister, a wrench flew up from the floor across the contractor as if an invisible being tossed it through the hole in the roof. The wrench struck the friendly roofer directly between his eyes before it fell right where it had lain before. The man disappeared from sight. The contractor stood frozen as frantic shouting and pounding feet resounded across the roof above him. Call an ambulance! Call 911! He heard someone shout. The contractor's stomach felt like a vacuum. Almost in a trance, he walked downstairs. He went out the front door and saw half a dozen men in neon vests standing in a circle and looking at a man on the ground. The contractor winced at the man's agonized groans. The contractor inserted himself between two of the men and nearly vomited when he caught his first glimpse of the fallen roofer. The man was broken. That was as complete a word as the contractor could use to describe him. Blood trickled out of his nose in a steady stream and darkened one of his eyes. A bone protruded from the middle of his forearm, and one of his legs was hideously contorted. His breathing was steady, but labored. An ambulance took the man away ten minutes later. The crew went home. They never returned. The injured man lived, but the incident paralyzed him from the waist down. The story he told led to the rest of the crew abandoning the job. He told them all exactly what happened, exactly what the contractor himself had witnessed. 
He said the wrench flew out of nowhere and hit him in the face. Since these were not superstitious men, and the contractor had been the only person in the house at the time of the incident, the rest of the crew had decided he was the one actually responsible for the mysterious flying wrench. They encouraged the injured man to file a lawsuit against the contractor, but the man refused to do so, claiming an evil force was at work and he didn't want to be tied up with anything to do with the house. Still, their distrust of the contractor led the rest of the men to share their interpretation of the story with friends and anyone who would listen. When the contractor tried to hire yet another crew to finish the roof, he couldn't find a single person willing to work with him. He threw some tarps on the roof while he finished the rest of his interior projects. Arizona was experiencing a serious drought that summer, thank God. No rain meant the compromised roof wouldn't get any worse at least. Water damage was the last thing the contractor needed. He listed the place for sale as is. The roof would still need to be finished, but everything else about the house was fine, at least when the contractor was alone. Various problems arose each time he showed the house to a potential buyer. Lights refused to turn on, water sprayed from plumbing fixtures. The most damning factor was the black, moldy-looking spots that appeared on the ceiling during tours and disappeared when the buyers left. Whenever he found himself alone, the contractor heard an insistent voice telling him to burn it all down. It would be so simple, the voice would say. Light a match. All your troubles will burn away. The idea seemed absurd at first, but over the course of two weeks, the plan started seeming like the only solution. When the alternative was becoming a destitute middle-aged contractor in a town where no one wanted anything to do with him, a quick, fiery end felt hauntingly appealing. But the contractor, a good southern boy, was raised never to take the easy way out of anything. He resisted the voice's seductive call. He woke up in the middle of one night, which turned out to be a miracle. Realistically, he never should have woken up again. His head hurt and felt heavy. His whole body seemed lethargic. Standing up took everything he had and left him weak. He fought the darkness threatening his vision and made his way into the hallway. There, he noticed the smell. It was the sulfuric additive the gas companies add to carbon monoxide to warn anyone nearby of a gas leak. He used the wall to hold himself up as he stumbled into the kitchen. He lifted the top of the gas stove and immediately saw the pilot light had blown out. The valve, which normally would have shut off, had been damaged to keep the gas flowing. A visible fog rested beneath the stovetop, too. The fog looked familiar, like something he had seen before. He knew it couldn't have been the gas. Natural gas is totally invisible. With an impossibly lively movement, the fog slithered into the valve and vanished. The contractor wondered if he was hallucinating. He used his final moments of consciousness to crawl out the back door. He awoke in sunlight to the sound of sirens. A neighbor had come outside to enjoy her coffee on the patio and saw the contractor sprawled out in her yard. When the fire department arrived, they shut off the gas and aired out the house. The contractor was given an expensive ambulance ride and an equally expensive hospital stay. He couldn't afford to put another penny into the home or stay there any longer. He was being ruined by whatever was going on, and he had begun to suspect the injured roofer had been correct about some evil force. He felt like his entire livelihood hung in the balance and was tipping toward devastation. 
In the end, he sold the house to another developer for just a handful of dollars above what he had bought it for. Factoring in costs from all the repairs, and especially his medical bills, the contractor was in the hole. Deep in the hole. While calculating his next move, the contractor lived out of his van in the back of a Walmart parking lot. He had no future in Phoenix, he knew that. Hell, there probably wasn't a future for him in the entire greater state of Arizona. He took stock of his situation as he sat amongst empty bottles and greasy foil wrappers under the fluorescent glow of the parking lot lights. He had burned his connections. Everyone knew he was destitute after bailing on his last project. They could never be convinced to take another job with him. On the bright side, nothing tied him to Arizona. He wasn't tied to nothing nowhere. No wife, no kids, no house. The license plates zip-tied to his van were the last remaining connection he had to the state. And so he drove. He only stopped for essentials and, occasionally, to pawn some tools to pay for said essentials. By the time he had reached the sprawling bridge that would transport him across the Mississippi into Illinois, the back of his van was empty, save for some loose trash. As his tires screamed across the bridge, the contractor looked over the wide river. To him, it was more than a natural border between two states. The river would serve to separate him from all he had left behind. All the trouble, all the failure, seemed to disappear in the current below. He felt hopeful. The hopeful feeling stayed with him until an unfriendly bell dinged from somewhere inside the dashboard. The contractor looked down and saw the fuel gauge pointing at the angry red E. The van would begrudgingly take him a few more miles, but with only seven dollars left in his pocket, he knew his trip was quickly coming to an end. Whispering encouragement to his dying vehicle, he continued along the highway until a blue sign appeared on the horizon. It read, Scarecrow, two miles. He didn't know if the town would have gas, but it really didn't matter. It seemed, by fate or happenstance, that Scarecrow would be his destination. The van sputtered and lurched as the quaint little town of Scarecrow appeared through the windshield. The contractor raised his hand to strike the steering wheel in anger, but paused. He replaced the violent act with a gentle stroke, whispering, Thanks for getting me this far, old girl. I'll take it from here. September, 2019. It started when she was a sophomore at Northwestern University. She had been encouraged throughout her freshman year to join a sorority. She always pushed back, saying things like, Me joining the white girl club? I don't think so. She knew the Greek organizations couldn't and wouldn't deny her just because she was black. She just didn't know how she could fit in with all those tiny, blonde-haired, blue-eyed dolls who seemed to be perpetually smiling. How could she ever relate to them? She caved and rushed with an old friend from her hometown and was surprised to find she was far from the only girl without a porcelain complexion. One sorority seemed particularly attractive to her, and although her friend chose not to adopt Greek life into her college experience, the sophomore joined. The Alpha Chi Omega House was the oldest residential building on campus, and it looked the part. During rush, the house had looked so alive and inviting. The warmth of her future sister's smiles had charmed the sophomore into believing she liked the house. But while she moved her meager belongings from the trunk of her rusty 98 Corolla into the formidable stone structure with its narrow windows and gaping doors, she felt uneasy. 
the weight of her luggage didn't account for the heavy baggage she sensed all around her. It was like being gently brushed by the breeze of a passing car and knowing that the car was barreling off the edge of a cliff. And the smell, the musty antique smell, reminded her of death. Not of rot or decay, more like the dishonest aroma of a funeral parlor, a thin, pleasant disguise for something desolate and miserable. Despite her initial misgivings and general discomfort, the sophomore managed to find her place and become close with her sorority sisters within the first two weeks of the fall semester. They often stayed up late and talked of their futures, which always somehow managed to include each other. One girl wanted them all to be her bridesmaids for her dream wedding. Another wanted to hire them all for her tech startup, which was currently just a few notes she had entered into her phone. The sophomore was originally entranced by these friendships and their long-term aspirations, but she quickly learned how fragile those friendships could be. Aspirations be damned. One night she woke up and saw a tall, dark male figure leaving her room. She shared the room with two of her sisters, so she assumed one of them had snuck a boy in for a little college experience. In the morning, she playfully asked which one of them got lucky last night. Her roommates looked at each other, expecting the other to answer, but neither had invited anyone in or was aware anyone else had been there. But I saw a guy leaving the room last night, the sophomore insisted. They started joking about pervy guys trying to spy on them, but the sophomore wasn't sure the explanation was as simple as a peeping Tom. Not wanting to sound paranoid, the sophomore decided to keep her concerns to herself for the time being. Maybe, she thought, I was still dreaming when I opened my eyes. Maybe I didn't see anyone at all. Later that day, they found all the fresh and refrigerated food in the house had spoiled. Unopened gallons of milk still days from expiration smelled like yellow bile. Thick mold blanketed every loaf of bread and even the refrigerated vegetables. No one could offer an explanation, but the sophomore had a sneaking hunch that the rotten food was somehow connected to the dark figure she had seen in the night. She didn't voice this concern, since it seemed bizarre and unlikely even to her, but she couldn't shake the sense that the two strange matters were connected. The sophomore awoke again the following night. This time, someone with a distinct, masculine shape was sitting on the edge of her roommate's bed, and there was no denying his presence. He noticed her staring and stood. She realized the man hadn't made an impression on the bed. The mattress didn't move at all when he stood up. The faceless man thing stepped toward her, crossing the small space between the beds before the sophomore could move. He moved silently. The sophomore couldn't even hear his breath as he bent and started leaning over her. A drifting cloud allowed blue moonlight to shine through the bedroom window, illuminating the space beside the sophomore's bed. When the moonbeam landed on the dark figure, his entire body evaporated into a thick mist. He didn't totally disappear, though. The mist hung in the air like a rain cloud. The sophomore screamed and woke her roommates as well as the girls in each neighboring room. One of the girls brought the house mother in when they couldn't console their screaming sister. The mist moved into the corner between the window and the ceiling. As her worried sisters and house mother tried to comfort her, the sophomore watched the mist swirl and churn in the blue moonlight. Then someone hit the light switch, and the mist vanished. The sophomore lied and told everyone she had had a nightmare and that she just needed to get back to sleep. She thanked them for their concern and bade them all good night. 
The next day was a tired blur. The sophomore tried to forget about the mist, thinking it might really have just been a terrible nightmare. But subtle occurrences throughout the day reminded her of the murky apparition. Something would move in the corner of her eye. A cloud of exhaust would billow out of a car as it jolted into reverse. Or she would catch one of her roommates staring at her sideways. The last felt the worst. Some of the other girls had begun to connect the spoiled food to the sophomore's visions, too. They had no reason for that assumption, but the sophomore thought it was likely true anyway. That evening, she went to her friend's apartment and they watched an old movie together. She couldn't remember the name of the film, but it was about some bank-robbing gangsters. In one memorable scene, they called the police from a payphone and reported a fake robbery at the bank. Then the gangsters sat back in their car with a stopwatch and waited for the cops to arrive and stopped the timer when they saw the first cruiser speeding toward the bank. In the next scene, they planned the real robbery, utilizing the response time they had measured with the fake call. The sophomore couldn't help but wonder if something similar had happened to her the previous night. Had that thing in her room been gauging how long it would take for help to arrive? Was it deciding how quickly it had to... To what? What did it want to do to her? As she went to sleep that night, the sophomore told herself if she saw the man thing she had to scream immediately. She couldn't give it any time to act. But then one of her roommates said, Try not to wake us up tonight, okay? I really need some sleep. The sophomore knew the girl was being a bitch, but she couldn't help but feel a little guilty about disturbing them all. She probably would have felt similarly if one of them had woken her up screaming. She had never believed in ghosts or spirits, not until she had seen one for herself anyway. So when she woke up after midnight and saw the looming shadow of a man near the bedroom door, she didn't scream. Instead, she whispered, Please just tell me what you want. She was shocked when the shadow whispered back. His voice didn't resonate from his mouth, though. It came from inside the back of her own head. He said, I want to save you. I don't need to be saved, she whispered back, also inside her head. They hate you. They don't want you here. Come with me. It will be better for everyone. The sophomore wanted to argue, but she remembered the wounding tone in her roommate's voice before they had gone to sleep. She remembered the stares she had received all day. There had been so much contempt in her sister's eyes. The sophomore realized she had spent the whole day feeling like a forgotten plus one at a wedding for someone she didn't know. The figure floated through the room, again coming into contact with the moonlight and dissolving in a shimmery mist. The mist filled the window frame. The glass disappeared behind it. There was only the mist, and the mist was everything. The sophomore was seduced by its swirling vortices. There was something beautiful just beyond them. She could feel it. Something behind the mist would give her life meaning if she could only reach it. She climbed out of bed and walked over to the window. She stared into the mist, hypnotized. There was a bliss in its foreverness. There was no danger inside it. No fear, no hate, no death. She reached forward to touch it. The moment her fingertip brushed its cold surface, it vanished. She now saw her reflection in the window, and the reflection of something else standing behind her. It was the man-thing, 
only now she could see details the shadows had hidden before. It was naked and hairless. It looked like an angel, only its once shimmering smooth skin had grown ragged and gray like a vibrant tree that had been reduced to a pile of dead coals. Its lipless mouth was taut beneath a narrow nose, and its eyes, the eyes that made the sophomore realize she had been tricked, were gray pits surrounded by crackling ember red. Before the sophomore had finished processing the sight of the spirit, the window slid open. The creature shoved the sophomore forward, through the flimsy, brittle screen. As she fell from the second-story window, she finally screamed. January 22, 1994 The 11-year-old boy trudged toward his family's basement lounge. It was somewhere to be alone. Not just alone in his head, but physically removed from his bickering parents. One way or another, they always managed to make him a part of their quarrels. There was no appeasing them, something he had learned long ago. Now, at the wise age of eleven, he had learned it was best to go away until they had tired each other out with their shouting. Something seemed wrong as he descended the plush stairs. The air looked fuzzy and a little too dark. He cocked his head to one side and, still two stairs up, reached around the wall for the light switch. The light shone through the gray whispers of danger that had wafted throughout the basement. Smoke. The boy thought of crying out to warn his parents, but thought of the whipping he might receive if he was wrong. What if there was no fire? Could the smoke be drifting in from a window accidentally left open earlier? The neighbors loved to have bonfires in the summer and fall. Maybe they had decided to give a winter fire a go. The boy completed his descent with trepidation. What would he see when he rounded the corner into the lounge? Everything perfectly in its place? Or yellow-orange doom swallowing their furniture, licking the walls and hissing hungrily to consume him next? The gap between the two possibilities excited him. He imagined the feeling was similar to the one his mother had whenever she secretly scratched those game cards she got at the gas station when she thought he wasn't looking. What he found was the previously unimaginable in-between. A soft center. There was a fire in the lounge, but it was contained to the old brick fireplace. The smoke, however, was billowing free and unrestrained. A thick black cloud was spilling out of the base of the chimney, first filling the lounge before dissipating into the auxiliary rooms. The flu, the boy thought. I have to open the flu. Why it hadn't been opened by whoever started the fire was a question that didn't enter his mind until much later. For now, the instinct to open the flue and release the overflowing smoke into the clear blue sky above took over the boy's every thought and action. He pulled the small lever and heard a sound like a crow echo through the chimney as the old flue creaked open. Smoke stopped pouring out, but still lingered in the air, making it murky and dark. The boy realized his eyes had begun to water. He could barely see. He rubbed them, cleared them, coughed, and opened his eyes again. The smoke had become concentrated in one side of the room. Slowly it began to collect in only one corner to the left of the fireplace. The fire churned and swirled unnaturally. Soon the smoke condensed into the form of a tall, featureless man. The boy stood transfixed as the vaporous man began to speak.
Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.